for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you're wrong. You should always do your own homework and let us know the word. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. This is your host, Dr. Matthew Otto, uh, dealing with some technical difficulties here. Paul, are you with me? I am with you. We're doing great, Matt. Okay. Paul, this is the part where you tell everybody what we do on this show. I'm so happy to. We are an internal medicine podcast, all caps, that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. And then we also are big believers in wellness and work-life integration and... Um, doing non-clinical stuff. So we usually spend the first 10 minutes of the episode just kind of messing around. Feel free to skip ahead, um, just like you would if you're listening to a WTF. But, you know, it's if you do that, just realize that it makes you a worse person. Um, <laughs> I would agree. I, I totally agree. And we do have a great guest, and she has some great things to say, even in the first 10 minutes before we get into the clinical topic. Paul, did you want to introduce her? Sure. I am thrilled to introduce uh, my friend and colleague. This is Dr. Regina Jacob, MD, MSCE. She is currently an internist at Temple University Hospital, uh, and that's actually where she completed her internal medicine residency. She attended medical school at George Washington University and then pursued a fellowship and received her master's degree in clinical epidemiology at Weill Cornell after completing her residency. Uh, Her clinical interests include cancer survivorship care, which is going to be hopefully the main feature of this uh, particular episode, but she's also really interested in things like adverse childhood events and, in general, how trauma shapes and informs health and patient care. So I'm I'm really excited to hear her thoughts specifically on survivorship and survivorship medicine. So without further ado, here is our discussion with Dr. Regina Jacob. Regina, we don't really... We don't really do a big big to-do at the beginning now. We just sort of start talking. So thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start off by asking you if you could describe yourself in a one-liner so the audience gets kind of a sense who you are beyond just as an internist. Well, one-liner would be I grew up in California, just outside of Los Angeles in the 80s and 90s. And I find that a lot of my research questions and sort of clinical practice comes is heavily influenced by the stories told in West Coast gangster rap. Any particularly favorite artists or, yeah, any favorite artists that you wanted to tell the audience about that they should check out if they're, maybe <laughs> some of these millennials don't know the, the great music of the 90s. Well, I have a favorite artist who is Tupac, but um, I will say that one of the best songs that I had ever listened to and really kind of gave me an understanding of what goes on and sort of underserved communities was Today Was a Good Day by Ice Cube. <laughs> Excellent choice. <laughs> it was like, you can't really play it on the air, but. <laughs> no, it's our new theme song now. <laughs> so I, I, knowing Regina, uh, I believe that she actually has her, her bachelor's in computer sciences. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. You're sort of the de facto tech person for us. Um, and so I, you're not stuck with medical app, app, but what kind of apps have you recently discovered or do you use commonly that make your life easier? So what what are your technological go-tos? Yeah, this is a tough one because I think in the workplace, I'm still pretty old school in that I like to sit at a computer. To be really honest with you, I'm not using too much in terms outside of just Hippocrates and MDCalc, the usual stuff. Oh, but anything just for life? Yeah, so not work, but just in terms of making your life easier. Recently, I, actually, most of my apps are all from Google, which is pretty sad. But I think all, a lot of my life is just on a bunch <laughs> of Google apps. <laughs> we we use Google all the time for the show. I I do like I do Fair like the enough. Google suite of apps. How about how about a book that you have recently enjoyed, or any book that you would recommend to the audience? Um, one of the, a, a book that I would highly recommend is a book that I kind of, I actually read it a long time ago, but it sort of stuck with me. Um, it's called cutting for stone by Abraham Burgess. Um, it's a great book and it kind of goes through just sort of life lessons as well as difficulties in sort of doctor patient relationships and also just maintaining a family throughout the entire sort of doctoring experience. I have never heard of that. I, I going to check that out. Thank you. Oh, you're kidding. That's actually one that's on my bookshelf. I can't believe there's been a book reference that 
I know, and you do not. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm doing this Are show to ready? learn. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear of books that I that I have not heard of. Paul, any more questions before we move into the topic here? Oh, sure. Why don't we Why don't we ask uh, the great Dr. Jacob, Regina? Tell us something about yourself that we will never forget. I always wanted to be a cartoon voiceover, so I had actually, you know, come up with this huge plan about how I was going to volunteer to mop the floors and dust the desktops at the Disney recording studios in Anaheim, California, with the hopes that I would one day be discovered while talking to my brooms and mops and dusting sounds. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> did did uh, you ever work there? No, I never worked there. I, I wanted to, and then <laughs> I moved away. <laughs> <laughs> So it was just, it was always in the brainstorm phase. It was, it was never even partially enacted. No, no. My, my little Cinderella story of how I was going to be a cartoon voiceover was never actually came into fruition. <laughs> okay. But I feel like other than not getting that job, it was pretty flawless plan. Like I think otherwise <laughs> probably worked out pretty great. There were no holes in that plan. <laughs> Paul, before we, we move on to talking about the job that she did get and is doing, did you want to tell us like a pick of the week today? Sure, I can. Um, there's, I, I've been sitting on this one for, I think, months at this point. <laughs> um, and so I'm going to probably recommend something that you will not now have the opportunity to actually take advantage of. Um, but I'm going to recommend that the 2018 movie Annihilation, which um, anyone who knows me knows I've been obsessed over since I actually watched it. It's a, a science fiction movie directed and written by Alex Garland, the guy who did Ex Machina. So if you if you like um, thoughtful, intelligent science fiction, um, it is fantastic. It's not a, a perfect movie, but I and I, I can't even really describe the plot in one sentence. But I can say that probably the last I don't know like forty minutes of it are the most visually beautiful things I think I've seen on screen uh, probably in decades. So I think it's worth watching just for that. Like rivals two thousand one in terms of how pretty it is. So um, I'll forgive almost anything if the movie looks good. So I, I can't recommend it highly enough. I would recommend the movie Annihilation, um, which is now, I think, out of theaters and not available to rent. So good luck and Godspeed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's let's move on, Paul, to a case, uh, the, the, the case that you have for tonight to, to start things off. Yeah. Now, I want to talk about Ms. Smith, uh, who's a patient that I saw right here in Cashlack Hospital. Um, for the purposes of our case, Ms. Smith is a 63-year-old female. She was diagnosed with uh, ductal carcinoma in situ three years ago. The tumor was ERPR positive, HER2 negative, and she was treated with partial mastectomy and radiation therapy, and she's currently taking tamoxifen. She follows pretty closely with medical oncology and breast surgery um, and goes routine exams with them and routine mammography. She follows with me not quite so much, um, but she does have comorbid hypertension. She's obese. She still smokes, say, about a pack a day with a 32-pack year history. Um, and then every when she does show up, it's generally for refills because she has a doctor that she sees routinely, i.e. her oncologist, and doesn't really see the point of the primary care visit. So I, I wanted to use um, this patient to sort of give us a framework to discuss the topic of survivorship. But even before we get into it, I'm, I'm hoping that Regina can just define for us exactly what cancer survivorship means. Sure. So in order to understand what cancer survivorship is, you probably have to understand who is a cancer survivor. So in general, what we like to what we determine or who we determine is a cancer survivor is someone with a history of cancer. It doesn't necessarily mean that the cancer has to be cured. It just means you at one point received a diagnosis of cancer and that you are currently alive. Those are pretty much the only things you need to be defined as a cancer survivor. Um, we have another definition, which is a co-survivor, which is someone who takes care of someone who has cancer because they're also usually affected by a cancer diagnosis. So once you understand who a cancer survivor is, it's much easier to kind of define what cancer survivorship is. Um, essentially, cancer survivorship is everything that you do in life that exists beyond just the cancer itself. Um, one of my own personal definitions of it is basically primary care for cancer survivors because it kind of changes your screening guidelines a little bit, but you can't also forget the other screening guidelines that you have. That's kind of what cancer survivorship is. Um, cancer survivorship in itself can be divided into multiple phases. Um, did you want me to go into that right now? <laughs> this seems like a great time to do that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, 
Sorry, I'm glad these are <laughs> No, pay no mind. You're doing great. So there's various phases of cancer survivorship. Um, we go into, we start with sort of the acute cancer survivorship. And to understand these phases, you have to understand that it's usually based on the time from diagnosis and the time from treatment. And that's sort of where those phases are defined. So acute survivorship phase begins at the time of diagnosis and goes through the end of initial treatment. Then you go into what we call extended survivorship, which is basically the first five years since your diagnosis, which usually starts at the end of initial treatment and goes through those first five years. And then you can go into the third phase, which is what we call permanent survivorship. And these are, we're taking into account people who are past those first five years and are now kind of in that long-term survival phase. And what's what's the utility of breaking down into these phases? Is there is it impact treatment or what what why why bother defining them in terms of how where they are in terms of their treatment? I think the biggest so it's actually twofold. Um, the beginning part is actually we all know that cancer has more likely to recur in those early phases, which is why those first five years are so crucial. Um, the second part is is that the toxicities that you receive from the various treatments, they vary in terms of how recent you just had those treatments. So there's acute toxicity and then there's kind of long-term toxicity um, that can happen much later. And so that's kind of what is defined in those specific survivorship you know, phases. The other part is anxieties that patients deal with also differ in each of these sort of survival favors, sort survival phases. So in the acute survivorship phase, the patient's usually just very focused on treatment and getting through treatment and being able to deal with the physical burdens of treatment. And then once you get into those permanent survivorship phases, patients usually dealing with just the anxieties of having to go through that whole process in itself. That's kind of what um, a lot of patients kind of refer to it as the new normal. That's kind of where that permanent survivorship anxiety sort of psychological phase is for patients. Regina, one thing that I came across when I was when I was kind of pre-reading for this was that most patients are going to be projecting out forward. Some of the graphs were showing most patients are going to be more than five years since they were initially diagnosed and started treatment. And there was one mm -hmm. study actually looking at a like one of these comprehensive care centers for patients with cancer and only about 5% of the patients that were being seen there were patients who like had had cancer more than five years ago and were now no longer receiving treatment. So what I took from that was that the majority of patients who's like, who are chronic survivors, or I guess you could say permanent, I, I, I'm still a little shaky on the difference between chronic and permanent, but most patients who are in that more than five years since they got treated and now we're not in active treatment, they're going to be, be seen by the primary care. And that's why we need to know how, like, what these care plans are about and how to enact them, because most of these patients that are far out are going to be seeing us. Yes, that's correct. And just to kind of clarify the difference between chronic survivorship and extended survivorship, chronic survivorship is particular for people who have sort of incurable or indolent cancers, like okay. your Waldenstrom's or your CMLs. So they do need occasional treatments. They need occasional chemotherapies. And so their, their, their survivorship care plan is slightly different because their, their cancer is indolent. Their cancer I is see. a chronic disease. So they actually need their oncologist to be with them, sort of like an endocrinologist follows a diabetes, a patient with diabetes. Right. Okay. That's, that's much clearer now. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. And then just, I mean, just to go off on some, we do, I do have some stats here, which I find to be very interesting, which is the reason why this is such a big um, knowledge gap for a lot of primary care doctors. Basically in 1971, there were about 3 million cancer survivors. And as of 2016, they were saying upwards of 15.5 million cancer survivors. Um, the numbers are that 67% of today's cancer survivors were diagnosed more than five years ago, and almost 20% of them were diagnosed more than 20 years ago. So it's, it is a growing need, um, which is the reason why primary care physicians need to be familiar with how to take care of these patients. 
and because I don't think we're going to get it to it later, and you you mentioned the word co-survivor, and I think, uh, so yeah, you know, airing our airing our personal matters on the show, Paul, <laughs> as you know, we like to do. Sure. So my my father died um, of complications of his cancer treatment in 2016 in December, and the you know I I had never heard of survivorship until the past year or so that we've been talking about doing this episode. And I had never really thought about how how much my family was had been affected, especially my mother, but all of us. Like you know, my he had mantle cell lymphoma. He, I thought he was going to die in the first three to five years because that's kind of what the stats would suggest. But he he ended up having this like indolent form where he was on rituximab maintenance, which he eventually died of an opportunistic infection. And it just kind of, you know, the whole time I was expecting something bad to happen. And then when it did happen, it was just like this crazy three month thing. Uh, and, you know, it's just so it does really heavily affect families. So I think that, um, you know, for me, that's it, it's very easy to understand the survivorship and why it's so important, having gone through it as, I guess, a co-survivor along with my mom and the rest of my siblings. So. I, you know, I'm, I'm excited to hear more about this from you so that I can help more patients, uh, through this, through this issue. Yeah. I feel like even for me, it's just not a concept I just thought much about. You know, I, I would see patients in practice and they'd say, well, yes, I had had neck cancer and it was treated and I'm, I've now been, you know, five years in remission. And I think that sounds really important and I don't know what to do with that information. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the patient has anxiety anytime she gets a URI and she has a sore throat, she loses her mind. And I completely understand it. And it's, you know, from a survivorship framework where anxiety is a large part of that process, I mean, it makes a lot of sense, but I, I just feel like I didn't have the right frame to kind of hang the thought process on. And so this has been, even for me, I, this is, and the other thing that we do on the show is just error ignorance a lot. For me, this is um, a really helpful way to kind of start to think about those patients. And to be honest with you, for both of you um, and anyone who's listening, that the more people are aware of this, that's actually the cure in itself for patients' anxieties. Um, I think a lot of the conflict that we've run into is just the transitions of care from whether it's hospital to outpatient or oncology to back to primary care. Those transitions have been so fragmented that patients' anxieties are actually made worse. So you're going to tell us a little bit about these survivorship care plans. Can you go into a little bit of the different models that exist? So there are a few models out there. Um, the big ones that have been sort of driven more recently are kind of dri driven by uh, can cancer center accreditation. So back in 2015, um, the, the cancer societies basically kind of said that your cancer center wouldn't get accredited unless you incorporated survivorship care planning as part of your oncology practice. So that kind of drove a lot of the models to be the way they are now, which is focused primarily on meeting after you're, you've completed that acute survivorship phase, meaning you've completed your first treatment and or you've completed your initial treatment, and then you meet with a, usually a nurse practitioner who kind of creates a survivorship care plan for you with the idea that you're going to take that care plan back to your primary care doctor and it's supposed to smooth the transition between oncology and primary care. I have received exactly zero care plans in the past uh, five years <laughs> of clinical practice. I received well, probably at least three usual, times that. In, in, in <laughs> medicine, I think these transitions have always been very challenging. Uh, think about the times that you didn't get discharge summaries for patients coming out of the hospital. It's the same thing in terms of we haven't quite figured out the best way to make that transition a warm handoff. Right. I'm, I'm pretty sure technology is at a point where we should be able to figure this out in the near future. I, I know that technology exists to easily share this kind of information. It just seems like we're just kind of, I know we're capturing billing, but uh, I know, I don't know that we're necessarily getting the information where it needs to go. Sorry. Yeah, I don't, I, Sorry I, to I vent on billing. Work in progress. <laughs> and I think the more people that know about it, it's probably better to actually call up the oncology practice and say, Hey, I need a care plan. So you're saying that most, most of our patients well, let's say this. Is this fair to say that if our patients were treated in a large academic medical center, that they should have a care plan when they're coming back to us? 
That's correct. Okay. That's correct. And if you don't get it in your hand, you should be able to call over and ask for it. Okay. So I, I probably, had I known that these things existed, I probably would have asked for them and maybe then I would have received more than zero in the past five years. Is it, what about yeah. smaller private practice oncology groups? Do they have the same standards? Would, would, should we expect that they might have care plans as well? So it kind of differs. I think a lot of the times you're going to see in the larger academic centers, you're going to see sort of disease specific clinics. So you'll see the, you know, lung cancer survivorship clinic and the breast cancer survivorship clinic, and they'll kind of be divided by disease specific clinics. I think when you go out into the community, it actually models a little bit more sort of the geriatric plan where it's a multidisciplinary clinic in itself, where you'll have a mental health expert, a nurse practitioner, a physical therapist, a nutritionist, all of these people that are kind of involved in the multidisciplinary care of a cancer survivor. Okay. So I, and that sounds fantastic. Um, I would like to take a step back um, and just ask who, who's responsible for what parts of the patient? So that, you know, the patients have maybe these survivorship clinics, whatever the model may look like they're following with their medical oncologist. They also have a primary care doctor who, who's responsible for what? And is there concordance among the oncologists, the, the PCPs, or is there concordance even among what the patients expect? Like what, who should be taking care of what parts of the patient? That's a great question. And I'll be honest when I say that I think we're still trying to figure it out. I think in in the back of everyone's mind, and there is some evidence to suggest that, you know, if oncologists are following cancer patients long term, they're more likely to get the appropriate surveillance for their cancer. But if PCPs are more likely to follow them long term, they're more likely to get all of the other things that need to happen, like, you know, tobacco cessation and weight management and proper diet and healthy living. So it's kind of a hard thing to figure out whose patient it is. One thing that has been shown to kind of influence this is that primary care physicians are not very comfortable with kind of taking complete ownership of a cancer survivor. Right. Um, and I think that's kind of what these sort of podcasts and other learning aspects are important because we need to actually make people comfortable with taking care of someone who had a diagnosis of cancer. I think if you if you have a care plan that you've received and you you presumably can get in touch with the treating oncologist or at least that clinic if something goes wrong then uh, people are going to be more comfortable and just knowing that these types of things exist. Paul, do you think now is a good time to try to go through a care plan? I think we can create one maybe for our patient Mrs. Smith here. Sure. It's nice of you to ask me. We'll get Dr. Jacob involved too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I believe you have the care plan in front of you. I don't know if Dr. Jacobs does. So we can uh, we can walk through the, the portions. And I should mention that these are, uh, there's a couple different places you get them from. George Washington University has some free ones that are really nice. And then also ASCO, which I don't exactly know what it stands for. Some cancer organization. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. Some cancer organization is the... <laughs> American Some Cancer Association. <laughs> yeah. And and they are they are basically disease specific and they they you can fill them out and that's what we're going to do here just to kind of give a sense of what type of information is is contained on these forms. Yeah, and we'll well I think you said this we'll link to this in the show notes, but the one we have is specific for for breast cancer survivorship from ASCO. And so it's even the stuff that you think is would be obvious, I think would be helpful to know. So it has, who's your primary care doctor, which I'm all for, <laughs> who is your surgeon, your radiation oncologist, your medical oncologist, all worth knowing. And sometimes we don't know the answer to that. And then in terms of the treatment summary, so what was the cancer type or histology subtype? Which breast was involved? Was it ER positive, PR positive? Was it HER2 positive? And then the day of the diagnosis, the stage, and the type of treatment completed. So for our patient, it was, we said ER, PR positive, I believe? Yes. Um, and then there was in fact surgery, which is part of the treatment. Then you're supposed to actually know the, the surgery date and then the surgical findings, which I don't think we've included in the case and whether or not there was axillary dissection or a sentinel biopsy. Um, the, the plan would also mention if radiation was involved. So in the case of Ms. Smith, there was, and then if there's systemic therapy after, after treatment, um, or before treatment. So things like chemotherapy, hormonal therapy. So in the case of our Ms. Smith, um, who is now on, uh, systemic, uh, hormonal therapy after the fact. 
And then even more helpfully, we were talking off air. They asked some of the names the agents used for chemotherapies because I think that's one of the things where we never have any idea. We know that they got yeah. something that made them sick, but we don't know what specific agents there are. Here, it's, it's a whole checklist that you can actually check off. And I think, and Dr. Jacob may speak to this later, the actual specific chemotherapeutic agent may have implications in terms of the, the later stage complications. Um, and then in terms of ongoing treatment, are they on tamoxifen or aromatase inhibitors? And then the symptoms that are associated with those. And then it's the rest of it seems to be mostly, and correct me if I'm wrong, sort of primary care type stuff. And this may be my bias, but it's what's cancer surveillances are recommended, not just breast, but, but just for life and then other comorbidities. So things, are they using alcohol? What's their diet like? Um, do they have depression? Are they a tobacco user? Has there been discussion of weight management? And then also there are actually symptoms that are, are outlined in terms of what breast cancer survivors may go through. So are they having anxiety or depression? Um, how's their emotional or mental health? Is there com concerns about fatigue or fertility or memory or concentration loss um, or sexual function? Those kind of things. So it's, it's actually, it's a really nice document that sort of seems like a holistic view of the patient and all the stuff that I would want to know as a primary care doctor treating a patient who's been treated for breast cancer. Yes. And just with that information alone, you can feel quite empowered to sort of right. take care of the patient. When I was, you know, when I was doing mostly primary care, the, just knowing like when, how often do I need to get mammograms and do I need to get MRIs, uh, breast MRIs, that, that's the right. kind of stuff was always tripping me up. So to have it just kind of spelled out for me, uh, this, this would make my life a whole lot easier rather than like after the visit, having to email or send a message to the provider, trying to find out if like what the plan is. Right. And cause the, the therapy is so complicated. So these seem very helpful. So I would highly recommend that the audience, uh, make sure their patients get these filled out and if they, and, and make sure that they're delivered to you when the patient's coming back from oncology and ready to receive primary care again. And I think it's perfectly fair because, as you mentioned before, that we are in a little bit of a tech lapse in terms of the fact that these things might be filled out, but they might not actually make it into the electronic health record that you're looking at. So that's the kind of time where you are able to pick up the phone and call your oncologist or call the patient's oncologist just to kind of open those lines of communication. Absolutely. Yeah, because this this is a Word document, and I don't know if it depends on where you are, whether or not this would be – some version of this would be in the electronic health record. All right, Regina, so to change gears a little bit, and since since we're all just, uh, you know, talking about personal stories here, uh, <laughs> you, you, you had mentioned that you had a, a family member who had childhood cancer, and that was one of the things we did want to highlight on the show – so thinking about patients who are now adults who have had childhood or adolescent cancer. So can you tell us a little bit about, a little bit about your personal experience with that? And then we can use that as a framework to, to discuss uh, what we can do for these people in primary care. Oh, absolutely. So mm, my cousin, who I did get her permission to mention her here on the show, um, she's what I like to call an ultimate survivor because she actually survived two different cancers before the age of 40. Oh. Um, her first one kind of came at the age of 15. She was diagnosed with osteosarcoma. And in those days, they were amputating. So at the age of 15, she was an amputee. And she had quite a bit of services in terms of ensuring that she was going to finish high school, ensuring that she was going to get into college and kind of teaching her how to walk again and teaching her how to be independent. Um, and that was kind of all part of her care as a pediatric cancer survivor. Then you fast forward about 15 years or so, and she's diagnosed uh, with ovarian cancer um, and on an incidental finding during a different surgery. And when she had her, she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer and they pretty much, you know, she had a ovarectomy and a hysterectomy and she didn't have kids at this point, but she wanted them. And her sort of plan, her survivorship plan was a little bit interesting. She was in the hospital after this major abdominal surgery. She had one sort of physical therapy evaluation and they kind of looked at her and she walked up and down the hospital maybe once. And then they were like, okay, she's safe to be discharged home. <laughs> and so she goes home, meets with her <laughs> primary care doctor who didn't even know this happened to her. Um, and then she was just kind of sort of lost in the transition of dealing with this kind of major life event. Um, and I think those, those sort of transitional issues 
are still prevalent today, but I think it's also what kind of inspired me to go into this. And I forgot what we were talking about this for. <laughs> no, well, you were just, you were just relating your own experience with the survivorship and, and thank you for sharing that with us. So it's, and that seems a little bit, that kind of leads to the next topic we want to ask about in terms of the differences between childhood cancer survivors and maybe adult cancer survivors. And then I guess there's this group in between these, these adolescents and young adults. And I just wonder if you could speak to how the experience is different for each of those age groups and sort of what things that we should be, should be mindful of. Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, in pediatric cancer survivors, actually what's interesting is that childhood cancers have been pretty curable for a long period of time. So a lot of our data um, that exists, I think there was a paper that came out in 2010 that basically compared um, from the SEER database, gathered a, a lot of survivors, comparing them between 1971 and 2010. And most of these were childhood cancer survivors that were surviving well into their adult life. Um, and that's kind of where a lot of our data comes from in terms of childhood cancer survivors. The problem is, is that that data isn't really, you can't really generalize it to the adolescent young adult population. So interestingly, the adolescent young adult population, or what we call AYA, they are the one group of cancer survivors whose survival has not improved in the last 10 years compared to their, ad compared to their adult and childhood counterparts. Um, and part of the problem is that, you know, we don't, we don't have data on them. The other part of the problem is that they tend to have both childhood cancers that are coming later in life, and they have early forms of adulthood cancers that are also coming earlier in life and therefore are taking a little bit longer to be diagnosed or being diagnosed later in the disease process or diagnosed as a little bit more pathologically sort of severe. Right. I would expect actually probably those types of cancers probably tend to be more aggressive. You have the early form of, of, of typically adult cancer. Correct. You, you mentioned the survival data. Is what, are, what is the life expectancy for someone who is a survivor of a childhood cancer versus an adolescent or young adult versus an adult with cancer? I'm sure I know it varies by the type of cancer, but it, in general, are there, are there generalizations you can make? I mean, I think a, a lot of it is sort of Number one, with the AYA group, their cancers tend to be fairly rare. Mm -hmm. So that is factored into their survival. Um, if you kind of look at the breakdown, I think the majority of adolescent young adults, the majority of their cancers tend to be lymphomas, melanomas, um, uh, GU or genital system cancers, and then cancers involving the endocrine system, which tend to be a little bit more aggressive. Um, they also do get as we mentioned previously, the adult cancers at an earlier age, and then those ones also tend to have poor outcomes just based on the tumor grade alone. And so it's, I, with not even trying to be funny, but you know, adolescence is just awful in general. You know what I mean? Like it's <laughs> like, I think we should all pat ourselves in the back for making it through it just because it's such an emotionally trying time. If you throw God almighty, a cancer diagnosis into it is how emotionally um, does that group do? Um, compared to say the, their younger cohort or not the cohort, but the younger patients or the older patients, is there any difference there? Yeah, there actually, there are, there are differences. And actually, if you can break it down into behavior patterns, we are seeing that there is, you know, adolescent AYA group, um, they tend to be smoking more than the age match controls of their same age group or their, or their peers. So we're talking somewhere around tend to be smoking almost twice as much as their counterparts. They tend to be more obese. They tend to have more chronic health conditions. They do tend to have poor mental health and poor physical health um, in compared to just people of the same age that don't have a history of cancer. So, so for your, I'm going to try to use the terminology correctly. So for the, for patients who are AYA specifically, I, I was reading that sexual dysfunction is a concern. So how do you address that? Is there anything we can do for these people? I think the basic question is, or I guess the basic answer is, is that you just have to know that it exists and you have to know to ask about it because like most people, they don't really volunteer their sexual dysfunction right off the bat. So right. it's one of those things that requires a little bit of probing and you're not going to probe if you're not sort of aware that it exists. Uh-huh. 
Are we talking uh, uh, like erectile dysfunction or, or these more like super tentorial problems that we can send them to counseling for? I, I'm totally naive. Like, you know, I don't have any knowledge about what this would be. So a lot of it is actually fertility issues, okay. um, because if you're thinking about cancers that affect this particular age group, we're talking about genital cancers and right. uh, endocrine cancers. And so those sort of really affect fertility. Okay. So, I mean, a lot of us, uh, fertility science has become very advanced. So a lot of the people who are going into treatment have storage banks and things that are offered to them prior right. to treatment. But, you know, knowing to address those issues in a primary care appointment is pretty important because some patients uh, might not even remember that they had stored their sperm or had stored their ovaries in the past prior to treatment because all of it was happening so fast in this acute treatment phase. So when these people undergo treatment and we're seeing them, we're we're practicing adult medicine, we're seeing these patients uh, like looking out for some of the some of the effects after treatment for, from these people, what can we look for and what sort of things, yeah, what, what should we be looking out for and how do we handle that? I think, uh, you know, unfortunately, in at least the way our healthcare system is set up right now, you're not going to get a lot of the crux of patients' anxieties unless you're asking. And in this particular age group, the biggest sort of anxieties kind of come around body image issues, they come around just the general stressors of trying to find a career and trying to, you know, uh, raise a family. These are all sort of stressors that are already existing in the AYA population. And then you throw in a cancer diagnosis on top of that. And financial burden is a very big issue in that age group, specifically because it already is a burden in that age group without a cancer diagnosis. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, this, this sounds, and it sounds like problems that are not easy to treat or easy to fix. It just, like you, like you said, just knowing to ask about them is probably going to help the patient. So they at least know that you're tracking what, what may or may not be going on with them. It it just sounds like, yeah, it sounds like there's, it's a tough thing to treat. Like if patients are complaining of things like fatigue, uh, do you have ways that you can handle that or resources that you can point us and the audience to? Well, I, I guess I could flip the question back to you. Well, if a patient comes into you and says, I'm feeling fatigued, what's the usual thought process that you would be going through at that time? And then we can will, kind of think of how we can <laughs> augment it for a cancer survivor. Immediately do Lyme serology. <laughs> <laughs> I like to start with a full body MRI, sometimes a pet. <laughs> Uh, we were just talking about the financial burden. <laughs> so I, I generally, we, so we did a whole episode about fatigue with Dr. McDermott uh, from Colorado, and the, uh, the big, a big part of that is just taking a very good history, doing a good physical exam, and and the lab workup is is pretty basic. That that's where I would that's where I would start. Okay, so now if we were to say take a patient who has a history of cancer. And let's assume that you have all the history of the medications that they received or the treatment that they received. What else could you possibly be thinking about that could be cancer related that could be contributing to fatigue? Right. Yeah, this is where I'm going to get out my medical app and start looking up uh, side effects of everything that they've they've gotten and, and think about what therapies they've they've had whether it's radiation or systemic chemotherapy, or if they're still on some sort of a maintenance regimen, uh, that's that's kind of where my head would be going here. And I seems, and you would be right. That would be that would be the correct way to do it. <laughs> this seems like an excellent chance to sort of segue back to our case, actually. So let's um, just sort of speaking about the possible treatment related stuff. So let's say Miss Smith comes back to us and. At this visit, you know, she finally has a reason to see her primary care doctor that's not refill. She's now reporting that she's having menstrual spotting, uh, and she actually hasn't had her period in years at this point. So for Ms. Smith, who has this history of um, breast cancer with surgery and radiation and now is on tamoxifen, what sort of specific concerns do you have given her cancer history? And then can we maybe broaden the discussion to other potential um, treatment-related concerns that other that are commonly seen? Well, with the menstrual spotting, uh, I think most people are going to classify that as dysfunctional uterine bleeding, and you always have to think about a second malignancy at that point, just 
because she's postmenopausal and she's now showing up with menstrual spot- spotting as a chief concern. So I think that is already where you're already going to be thinking. And then you're probably going to think more along that line, knowing that she's on tamoxifen because that has an increased risk of endometrial cancer. And Regina, since you, since you uh, tested my, my knowledge of what I would do for fatigue, uh, let's say that, let's say that Mrs. Smith is super fatigued right now uh, at the same visit. <laughs> what are we? Also, gonna... she has a limp. <laughs> what else, what else are we going to do for her? Uh, to to work up this fatigue at 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 the same time we're addressing this bleeding that she's having. Well, if we're going to break this down, I, I'm a, I'm going to assume that you've done a full history and physical. So I'm just going to focus on how does her cancer history kind of tailor your workup or give you additional things that you want to look at. Um, so in her case, she's had a history of chest radiation or radiation to the breast. So you kind of have to think about all of the organs that are within the radiation field that could potentially be affected right. and could what could cause fatigue. Well, in the chest, I would kind of think of the thyroid. So checking a TSH is not unreasonable in a person who's had a history of chest radiation who's now complaining of fatigue. The same thing if you're if she was treated with, say, adriamycin or cyclophosphamide, for her breast cancer, which, which can be treatment choices or treatment choices that are used in her chemotherapy. Um, adriamycin, as a lot of people know, if they're studying for their board exam is known for cardiotoxicity. So fatigue could also be coming from the fact that she's, you know, developing cardiomyopathy from her adriamycin therapy. Um, another one to think about is secondary leukemias can often come from cyclophosphamide. So if that's something that she's had, it's not unreasonable to check a CBC. And these are kind of just how we can work up the complaint of fatigue in somebody with a history of cancer. Mm-hmm. And then just the other common things, um, depression can obviously be, can, you know, show up as fatigue or someone can complain of fatigue when they're feeling depressed. Uh, tamoxifen also has been associated with memory and cognitive decline in itself. Right. So that it could also be a side effect from tamoxifen. And then you can never forget about late recurrence. So if someone's complaining of fatigue or headaches, it's kind of low threshold to check an MRI at that point to see if there's any metastases to the brain. Yeah. Wow. This, uh, it, it gets, I mean, and then there's, you know, as a primary care, there's going to be all these different cancers that you're going to be seeing. So definitely, definitely brushing up on this stuff and looking, looking at the patient's care plan, seeing what they've been exposed to. And that, that can kind of lead you down the road of what other testing you would do. I, things I would also add in just kind of asking about sleep and diet and exercise, things like that. You know, if she's, if she's sitting on the couch and eating a terrible diet and not sleeping, she, we know she's smoking. I, I'm not surprised she's fatigued, but I, I do think because when you look at it through the lens of this is a cancer survivor who might have a second primary now, you you do have to have like a little bit more suspicion. You can't just blame it on that. So, Regina, are there are there any? Well, I know there are. I think there's a million guidelines um, out there for survivorship. Are there any specific ones that you would recommend, or anything that we should be looking at, or what's the best way to sort of, in general, think about these patients? That's a great question. Um, there are. A million guidelines, to be very honest with you. Ten years ago, we had sort of no guidelines. And then I think people realized that there was a problem. So now we have too many guidelines. And you can pretty much pick a society and they will have cancer guidelines or survivorship guidelines. So ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, has one. The American Cancer Society has one. The National Comprehensive Cancer Network has one. And there's also primary care guidelines for cancer survivors. So USPSTF also has its own version of cancer survivor guidelines. I think as is the case with almost all guidelines in primary care, just think about how many times we've revised the hypertension guidelines and how many times a new sort of hyperlipidemia guideline comes out, or we're still trying to figure out how to treat osteoporosis and how to screen for it. (laughs) There's a lot of guidelines out there. And the point is, is that just like all other primary care practice, you have to tailor those guidelines to the person sitting in front of you. And that's kind of the big take home point. 
the first take home point would be that cancer survivorship is really just primary care for cancer survivors. And the second one would be, there are a lot of guidelines. You just need to know that they're out there. And then you should be able to tailor whatever those guidelines are to the person sitting in front of you. I want to ask, uh, we had some questions on, on Facebook. Some of them were really specific. I think one of these you might be able to answer quickly and it it somewhat goes along with what we've already talked about. If you if you adopt a patient who had gotten high doses of doxorubicin as a child or a young adult, when can you stop worrying about cardiac cardiac toxicity? And what if what if this person wants to get pregnant? Do you, do we need to get an echo and an EKG? So the the truth of the matter is is there's actually no evidence to be screening echocardiograms on people who are asymptomatic. Now, pregnancy is a little bit different of an issue, but for the most part, I think in all primary care practices, people who have a history of doxorubicin or other adriamycin therapies, um, they can, essentially, you want to screen for symptoms. So you want to screen for dyspnea exertion. You want to screen for orthopnea. Um, those are the things you want to screen for. And that will kind of allow you to then go to the next step of checking an echocardiogram. That said, pretty low threshold to check an echocardiogram if someone has a symptom. Okay. The that was a question from Bonnie from Facebook and then the I guess the the follow up to that is was asking about emotional support and so Regina I'll ask you cuz I I was wondering this myself is there anything that you're referring patients to that any sort of referral that you found that's helpful or just non-pharmacologic therapy maybe maybe some sort of like support groups either on the internet or or locally that that you refer patients to when they're cancer survivors yes yeah, so it's actually dependent on the type of cancer for a lot of the rare cancers i think the support groups that are available on the internet tend to be extremely helpful because there's just a paucity of patients that have very rare cancers but if you have you know, I don't want to call it a popular cancer, but if you have a cancer that is more prevalent in society, say breast cancer or prostate cancer, a lot of times you can find, you know, live support groups in your area with just a quick Google search and you can go to those active uh, groups. And you, do you recommend them based on experience? I do. I do recommend them because I think a lot of times patients just feel as though they're with people who understand what they're going through. And a lot of the anxieties come from feeling like you're dealing with this by yourself. Yeah. Even though you have a lot of people around you, you're the only one that's actually going through the illness. So just knowing that there's a whole room full of people that are also going through it similar, going through something similar makes it easier. Yeah. Yeah. I had a patient who was telling me that one of the reasons she was really struggling with one of the many reasons she was struggling with being a cancer survivor was because her family just didn't understand why she couldn't just get back to uh, about going about her normal life. She was still working, but she was just finding it hard to uh, to kind of be her normal self and be involved at church and do all the things that she had been doing and she had kind of withdrawn a little bit and the family just didn't understand it and it was kind of pushing them further apart. So it is, it's definitely a, th a thing that I've seen, at least that's an N of one, but now that I know to look for it, I find, I bet I'll find it a lot more often. Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually one of the most common things I've heard um, from cancer patients and cancer survivors is that the whole process of treatment and hospitalizations and multiple labs and multiple doctors is, is actually very lonely. Yeah. Um, and that tends to be that loneliness factor is kind of what drives the anxieties in each of these different phases. So let's let's end this with some take home points and uh, give us give us some good news about all this that we've been talking about to end on. The good news is is that we have more cancer survivors <laughs> because our medicine is better. So we just need to be aware of how to take care of them in the long term. Okay, I'll take that as good news. And now for some uh, any specific take-home points, like one or two really important things from what we've discussed that you don't want the audience to to forget. The main ones are, you know, cancer survivors and cancer survivorship is basically primary care for a long for a cancer patient. Um, and so, if you can think of it that way, 
it kind of takes the edge off in terms of all of the what feels like a knowledge deficit when it really is just you know tailoring your care to a patient who happened to have cancer any any other take-home points or can we let you get on with your night uh and i i thank you for taking so much time to talk with us this was fun thanks for having me i don't have any other take-home points all right you have been primary care get a care plan yes do primary care put your thinking hats on and do primary care This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast or sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. You'll get a copy of our wonderful show notes mailed to you each week. Send us your feedback to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. It helps if you subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. What do you think Stuart's up to? Do you think he misses us? <laughs> I He's probably wearing a headset yelling at 10-year-olds over the internet. <laughs> All right. That sounds right. And then I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. And good night. <laughs> I do kind of imagine. That's that's what he told us he was doing last time he, he didn't join us on air. So I imagine that might be what he's doing. And thank you to our... All our correspondents who are helping to write and produce the show. On Twitter, we have Hannah Abrams. Beth Garbatelli is on Instagram. And Chris Chumanchu is on Facebook. Thank you and good night. I think this is great. I will I will edit this and make us all sound like geniuses. <laughs> Godspeed. Good luck with that. <laughs>